What's up, everybody, and welcome to A Table Talk. This is a podcast of the beloved community where we talk about race, inclusion, and more. It's good to be with everybody on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. It is November 8th, 2023, and my name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the beloved community, along with Alice Williams. And today, we're interviewing Mason Menanga. I should probably have asked you how to pronounce your last name. How do you pronounce your last name? It's Meninga, but Menenga works as well. You know, whatever <laughs> works for you works for me. What is that? What are, that last name? What is that? Is it the the gum Greek? makes it Dutch? I, I I do have a little bit of Dutch in me, but I'm mostly German. Uh, and it sound from my understanding, I who knows? You know, family legends can be totally off. But from what I was told growing up, uh, my German ancestors came from obviously Germany to America, and their last name was Menen. And they moved to a more like Dutch area of the country. And they actually were, I don't know if they were being persecuted exactly, but they were certainly like kind of marginalized in these Dutch communities because they were probably one of the only people that weren't Dutch. And so they changed their last name to add that ga at the end to make it sound like they were Dutch, even though they were German. So that uh, that's the family legend. Who knows if that's really true or not, but uh, I'm mostly German, but I do have that very Dutch last name. Excellent. Yeah, share that story with your... Your cousins, your your the little people, the, the younger right. generation, so they can share that forever. My last name is Lopez, and it actually means son of a wolf, son of wolves. Really? Which is interesting because that's how I would describe my childhood. I feel okay. like I was raised by wolves, you know, like wow. growing up in Miami and stuff. I feel like I was raised in kind of a tough. So, anyways, interesting. Wow, interesting. My my mom's maiden name was Wolf, so maybe in some way, shape, or form, we're kindred spirits uh, through through our families. Yeah, maybe we were wolves, you know. Yeah, one point. All right. Well, Mason is a a theologian, a podcaster, a YouTuber, and he's the self-proclaimed the internet's youth pastor. I love that. Um, he also has a master's of divinity from Christian Theological Seminary and a master's of arts in theology at United Theological Seminary. He has two podcasts. Check them out: A People's Theology and the Black Sheep Podcast. I'll make sure I'll send all these links so you guys can check them out. And the way that I would describe Mason is that he trolls evangelicals online. And what I mean by trolling is I actually mean that in a more mature way to say that he offers satirical critique through social media and it's thought provoking, it's engaging, and it really challenges those who view the scriptures from a more conservative, figurative, literalist kind of lens. Um, and he ends up getting blocked a lot. And I really admire his work because you know, he's doing it in a creative way. And so he's doing it in a way that makes me laugh, makes me think. And I like the drama too, because that's why we get on social media a little bit too. And so I'm so excited to interview him today and just to learn about who he is, why he does what he does, his inspiration, his family, and then engage in conversation. So Mason, thank you again for coming and just tell us who you are. And, and I want to introduce you to the United Methodist people, because I feel like they can learn a lot from you. So thanks for your time. Thank you for having me, Erwin. This is uh, really exciting to to be able to chat with you and hang out with you. It's the first time I'm ever meeting you, so I'm just really glad uh, that we're able to make this happen. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot to me in the world. Uh, I would imagine for most people, they want to probably hear a little bit of my story. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my story and kind of what I'm up to these days. And, yeah, then whatever questions you might have, uh, we can we can chat about those. So, yeah, I uh, am Mason. I grew up in prototypical conservative evangelicalism. Uh, you know, whatever you think of when it comes to the big worship, praise and worship kind of bands and 
the very uplifting messages and youth groups and all those sort of things. I grew up in all of that. Church camps. I uh, grew up in in prototypical conservative evangelicalism in uh, the middle of South Dakota, so pretty rural part of the country. And so, uh, yeah, my the first music I ever heard in my life was Veggie Tales. Those were the first songs of my my childhood. Uh, and then started getting into bands like Reliant K and Switchfoot and all the all the safe Christian bands that youth group kids were allowed to listen to. And uh, yeah, grew up in obviously youth group culture. I went to youth group every Wednesday, every Wednesday night, went to all the church camp stuff growing up. So very much had the prototypical conservative evangelical uh, upbringing. Uh, you know, whatever you assume all those stereotypes would include, I more than likely met all of those. I uh, had my Calvinist phase during uh, during high school. I got really into John Piper at that time. Uh, the funny thing is, despite being a growing up conservative evangelical, I it, it, the church I grew up in was technically United Methodist. Now, I often tell people, even though it was United Methodist, it was like only United Methodist in name only. It was a very large church. It had like over a thousand members. And I guess we did have like a traditional service that was like for kind of the older folks in our con congregation, but uh, it was, you know, big stage, all the lights, uh, all the praise and worship, very charismatic at times. Uh, the youth pastor that I had actually came from like the Pentecostal tradition. So very charismatic. Uh, in fact, I've, I've since found out uh, that my my church growing up, even though it was United Methodist, uh, gets in hot water or got in hot water a lot with the United Methodists because they uh, oftentimes did not baptize babies, uh, which is a big no-no if you know the United Methodist world. Uh, oftentimes, especially if like a youth pastor had a child, they would dedicate their babies instead. And I, I found out uh, when I was in college, I had a United Methodist professor in college and she was like ready for me to file complaints and stuff. I was like, I didn't even know that was a, a possibility for the my church to get in trouble for. So uh, all, all that's to say, we were United Methodist, but we were only United Methodist in name only, really. Uh, they, they didn't really have much association with the broader United Methodist community. Uh, so yeah, that was my childhood growing up. When I was in high school, later on in high school, I think my like junior or senior year, I started having some doubts about my faith uh, and, and certainly had some doubts about the kind of political upbringing that I had that I had been brought up in. Uh, I, obviously, growing up in South Dakota, I was raised very conservative. Uh, my dad, even to this day, listens to Rush Limbaugh reruns. But at the time when Rush Limbaugh was still alive, my dad was listening to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, so obviously, a very, very conservative environment. Uh, and yet, during the latter part of my uh high school career is when Obama was in office. And I still remember at that time having some questions around my faith and politics. And uh, even though I still would have described myself very much a cons like conservative theologically and conservative politically, I was starting to have some doubts about all of that. It, it, did, it seemed a little bit too much like to be Christian meant that you had to be conservative. And I, I just wasn't sure if that was the case or not. It just didn't seem like for somebody to be a Christian that meant that they had to be conservative politically and theologically. So I started to have some doubts around that. Around that time, too, obviously, being a teenage boy, I was starting to have like sexual urges and um, and, you know, just being a, a normal teenage boy that was having hormones go through my body. Uh, yeah, I just started to really also have like some frustrations about purity culture. And so, yeah, I was having some concerns around like 
the nature of politics and faith uh, when I was probably in the latter part of my high school career. And then obviously was having a lot of like frustrations around purity culture. Uh, and for those that didn't grow up in purity culture, it's essentially this whole culture around making sure that you don't have sex before marriage and that you're remaining pure, sexually pure uh, and all of that. And so I was starting to have frustrations about all of that my my like junior and senior year of high school but i didn't have any idea that there were any other kind of christians out there i thought that meant to be a christian either meant that you were a catholic a conservative catholic or you were a conservative evangelical i had really no uh, like idea that there were other types of christians out there uh and even though i grew up in the united methodist church i mean again that's that that's to say I, we, my church, even though it was United Methodist, had literally no association with like the liberal part of the United Methodist Church. So I truly had no idea that that even existed at all. And so I went to a very conservative Christian college. I, I was I happened to actually be an athlete. Uh, and so I got a scholarship to go to this small little Christian college and played football there. And I was also able to do track or I was also able to not just do track and play football, but also uh, was able to be a youth ministry major. I still kind of had this call of doing ministry. So I went to this conservative Christian college, and I, re I remember my very first class was this youth ministry class. It was like an intro youth ministry class. And the first book that we read was a book called Postmodern Youth Ministry. And I had no idea what the word postmodern meant, but what I did know about it was I was not supposed to like that word. I, I knew that much about postmodernism was I wasn't supposed to like that word, but I had no idea what it meant. So I was a little confused then to see like postmodernism connected to this word youth ministry. I was like, that doesn't seem to be, make much sense. But because it was for, you know, my course that I had to pass in order to graduate college, I was like, well, I'm going to read this book and do the best I can. And so I started reading the book. And then I quickly realized the author of that book was asking a lot of the same kind of questions I was asking, uh, asking questions around politics and faith, asking questions around sexuality and faith. And so there were a lot of these questions that he was asking that I was starting to ask myself. And at that point, I realized, oh, I'm not the only other Christian in the world that has these kind of questions about my faith. So I started digging into this author a little bit more, started doing Google searches and saw on like the Google related search bar thing or whatever. When you when I Googled his name, I saw people like Rob Bell, Nadia Boltweber, Rachel Held Evans, Brian McLaren and a few other people. And so I realized, OK, at least there's like five other people. Five other Christians are having questions about their faith like this. Uh, and then I started following those folks on Twitter and, uh, and other social media. And then I quickly realized, oh, wait, there's a whole community of these folks that exist, uh, these so-called progressive Christians and people leaving evangelicalism. I had no idea any of that existed. And so that was my first introduction to all of that. And so I really found a home in that kind of community of these people that called themselves progressive Christians and these people that were leaving evangelicalism. I really found a home in that. And so all throughout college, I just became more and more passionate about this kind of uh, way of thinking about theology and thinking about faith and uh, still remained a youth ministry major, even though my faith had completely changed. I still remained a youth ministry major. When I graduated, I started working at a progressive church uh, as a youth pastor uh, in Minneapolis. And so did that for a few years. Uh, around that time, started seminary. Also around that time, I also started my theology podcast called The People's Theology, uh, like you mentioned before. And then, uh, yeah, uh, I ended up doing that. And then I started working at a seminary in the Twin Cities called United Theological Seminary. And uh, then I also did another degree, <laughs> another seminary degree at United. And uh, 
that's where I'm kind of at now. Obviously, around all of that time or during all of that time, uh, Twitter stuff kind of started to pop off. Uh, you know, I had always uh, done Twitter, like Twitter. I've I've had Twitter since I was in high school, and uh, even when I was the most conservative person in, uh, that I knew, I was still using Twitter and always used Twitter as a way to like make jokes. Like jokes were always like a fun thing to me. I've always, my dad is a pretty funny person, and so I always. Uh, thought that this would be a great outlet for me to say jokes. And so even when there was like two people following me on Twitter, I was constantly throwing jokes out there. And obviously, as I, my faith started to change, I realized, oh, it can make jokes about Christian culture and growing up in that kind of environment. And yeah, when I when I graduated college and started seminary and all of that, started the podcast, I realized like, oh, wait, people are connecting to my stuff because they really appreciate like what I have to say. They like the humor around growing up in that Christian culture. So uh, yeah, just started to kind of figure out how to do that really well. So yeah, the Twitter thing kind of popped off a little bit uh, during all of that as well. So yeah, that's a little bit of my story of growing up conservative evangelicalism, all, although it was a United Methodist Church, uh, and then my faith completely changing while I was in college, and then uh, becoming more more passionate about theology and ministry and Jesus, uh, even after college uh, and doing seminary and all of that. And so that's where I'm at now. And uh, it's fun to just share what I think is uh, the the beautiful message and liberating message of Jesus. I get to share that to the world, uh, and uh, hopefully, I can inspire other people to do the same. So, that's where that's that's me in a nutshell. I don't know if that was all the fifteen minutes you wanted, but hopefully, that was a good ten minutes or so. Uh, but yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. I love listening to your story. I love listening to your background, and I have so many questions for you. Well, first, I feel like. South Dakota, right? That's kind of yeah. to be expected, right? Or am I wrong? White evangelical kind of culture. That's what's happening in South Dakota. United Methodist Church, oftentimes they're contextual. And so they're shaped by the community around them, the politics around them, the money around totally. them, right? So is that to be expected in the United Methodist Church in South Dakota? I would imagine so. I, I mean, I, I guess there probably are some more liberal or moderate congregations that are United Methodist that are in South Dakota, North Dakota, and some of those other uh, more conservative uh, parts of the country. But yeah, it's, I mean, certainly my United Methodist Church was very contextualized around the fact that, you know, growing up in South Dakota, it was very white, very conservative. And uh, it, that church definitely formed around those kind of politics and theology. You played football. What did you I play? Did. What position did you play? I played slot receiver. So you were a slot receiver? How tall are you? Yeah. You're like, you got to be like 6'2 or something. No, not for a slot. I was I was like the small white guy, you know, that the Patriots would have drafted. So uh, I'm 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 like five ten. I was like I played at about one seventy five. So I was one of those kind of quicker guys that would, yeah, get a lot of screens and and that kind of thing, or or go over the middle and get my head taken off by a safety. That was that was my job. That's hilarious. Are you a football player? I didn't know you're football players. It's tough to be a football player, and as a receiver too. There's like an arrogance that comes with being a receiver. Mm -hmm. There's yeah, I was, confidence, right? Yeah, I mean, there typically is. I was not one of those guys. I was the guy that people would throw out there to take a big hit uh, because that's what I could do. Uh, and I could catch the ball pretty well, obviously, being a receiver. So, you know, if you threw a ball to me, more than likely if it hits my hands, I'm going to catch it. Uh, so I could I could catch pretty well. And I was like fairly quick where I could make a move on a guy. But uh, other than that, I, I was, you know, fairly small as a receiver. So I, I I couldn't trash talk too much. I wasn't one of those big receivers that just overpowered people. I, I had to be a little bit humbled about it. <laughs> what was your 40? 
Um, I typically was running like four sixes. Um, nice. I, you know, at the level that I was at, that was plenty fast enough. You know, that that was just fast enough. I I wasn't like a huge burner or whatever. You know, I wasn't playing D one stuff, so I I wasn't at that level by any means. But uh, but at the level of college football that I was playing, it was just fast enough. I, I again, I I was not gonna end up going to the NFL by any means or anything with my speed. I was just fast enough for the level that worked. Uh, so. You know, and he got me a scholarship, you know, paid for part of school. So I was more than happy about that. That's funny. Um, <clears throat> I guess my next question for you is just kind of something that I've been thinking about. Um, and it is this. As somebody who understands the history of our church, the history of white evangelical culture, and in terms of colonialism and in terms of genocide, you know, I'm thinking about the Spaniards coming here and some of that theology, that violent evangelism. How is it that you're able to still be a leader of a movement that has been violent, has been aggressive, has been racist, has been sexist, has been homophobic? How do you continue to be a leader and, and want to share this good news of Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a question I think about all the time. Uh, I, I first want to say, there are a lot of even more progressive leaning Christians that sometimes want to claim that the Crusaders and some of those more violent uh, kind of Christian histories weren't actually Christians. And, and I, first off, I want to say, I think that's wrong. I, I think it's important for us to recognize the way that Christians have been violent throughout history because of their Christianity. Uh, it's not out of spite of their Christian beliefs. It's because of their Christian beliefs. So I first want to say that, uh, that, that I don't want to make a narrative that those people weren't real Christians or anything. So I, I first want to mention that. But what I will say is what gives me hope for Christianity, even now and in the future, is the fact that the first thing that the followers of Jesus did after he resurrected and then ascended, the first thing that they did was that they decided to share everything in common. I think that is a powerful thing. If your your uh, th this event happens uh, of this guy resurrecting and ascending, and the first thing, the first response to that is, we have to share everything in common. We need each other. I think that is a powerful statement about how uh, how the message of Jesus Christ uh, can transform our lives. So I hold on to that hope that what happened in the lives of, the, of those early followers of Jesus, where they shared everything in common in, in response to this Christ event, I think that can still shape uh, and transform our, our present and our future um, for people that want to follow Jesus. So that's the hope that I hold on to. And um, I, I think in the midst of all this violence, especially violence that uh, Christians are doing, I think that's the hope I hold on to is the fact that the first response of the first Christians or the first followers of Jesus was, let's share everything in common and uh, transform this world. And I still think that is possible today and even in the future. I love that vision because it reminds me of this podcast and, and my passion, which is the beloved community, which is Martin Luther King's vision of creating an all-inclusive community that makes sure that everybody has enough to eat, mm -hmm. everybody has enough shelter. And that all-inclusive community includes Christians, non-Christians, you know, believers, non-believers, Jewish people, all, all, everybody. And so <clears throat> my question for you 
Mason, and this may be a very complicated question to ask is, how can we continue to be Christian in this world? Or how should we continue to be Christian in this world? Learning from that violent evangelism, like what should have happened from the beginning? How could Christians have lived with the indigenous people? How can we live with our neighbors? Like what should have happened? What should be happening today? What is this vision of Christianity that we're trying to present to the world? Mm. And then the second question would be like, why is that so hard? Why is that so hard for some people to get, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that for that first question, I think it comes down to the greatest commandment, which is to not only love God, but love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of people, I think, uh, get really confused about what love really means. And uh, I think when you experience true love, that is the most powerful thing that you can ever experience. Uh, I truly believe, you know, a lot of people, uh, you, you know, with the rise of the war that's happening in the Middle East right now, a lot of people have responded to me about why I believe the things I believe in regards to that war. And one of the things I keep telling them is, you know, I, I truly don't think a bomb will solve anything. But and I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds abstract, but I truly believe love can absolutely be an answer to what is happening in the Middle East. Uh, when you experience true love, it will change everything. You will lay down, you will be willing to lay down a bomb. You will be willing to lay down a gun if you experience true love from with the other. And so I, I really truly believe that love will transform and can transform anything. And so uh, when Jesus calls to love our neighbors, um, whether it's our indigenous neighbor, whether it's our non-Christian neighbor, whether it's our black neighbor, doesn't matter. When you experience that true love, there's to me, there's nothing more powerful than wanting to express that and share that love with others. Uh, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that we're trying to evangelize or tell everybody that they have to be Christian or they're going to hell. I don't think that is true love by any means. Uh, but what I do believe is when you have your indigenous neighbor or your black neighbor or your non-Christian neighbor, when you share that love uh, with them, it means that you're breaking bread with them. Uh, it means that you're giving them a hug. It means that you're uh, taking care, making sure that their needs are met. That to me is the true love. And in the midst of that, it's really difficult, right? There's a lot of difference in the world. You know, I'm not a uh, I'm not a black Christian or I'm not a non-Christian person. I'm not a I'm not an indigenous person. So there's difference in between me and a lot of other folks in the world, including probably you and I, I would imagine a lot of ways. There's lots of difference between you and I. Uh, and so that makes loving each other different uh, and, and, and sometimes difficult because of that difference. But even in the midst of that, uh, I still think that Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. And uh, I, I still believe that love is the most powerful thing in the world and can, tra and can transform the world. And so even in the midst of those differences that make it really love very difficult, I still think it's certainly possible. Uh, and again, I think it will transform the world. That's great. You're absolutely right. You know, I think love helps us see ourselves in our neighbor and helps us definitely, you know, reach out. So I love, I love your your answer, and I love this comment that you made. And I want to see if you can answer this question. You said something about to the effect of this, so which brings up this question: Does everyone have to be Christian? Mm. Does everybody have to be Christian? Are they going to hell if they're not Christian? Mm. <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I, so to me, those are two very different questions, right? Does everybody have to be Christian? And does a person go to hell if they're not a Christian? So for the first uh, question, 
I, I certainly don't think everybody has to be a Christian. I think there's lots of ways to experience the ultimacy, the, div the divine in the world. And uh, certainly we have seen that throughout history. There's lots of different ways people have experienced the divine. So I don't think that just because a Sikh or a Muslim or a Hindu person experiences the divine in a different way than I do means that they're entirely wrong. Now, I do think there are certainly differences. I, I, don't, I don't want to be a kind of person that thinks that every religion is the same or that religion, all, all these religions boil down to just love or something along those lines. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there are these very distinct theological differences between each religion. Uh, and I think that's okay. Again, there's differences there. And to love one another in the midst of those differences, I think is a, is a test uh, or a call that we are to, uh, that we're made uh to do. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's certainly possible to to love one another in the midst of those differences and, uh, and and that people can still experience the divine in the midst of their own religious tradition. Um, and to me, that's a very different question around regards to hell. Right. Uh, and I, I certainly obviously am not a person that believes in eternal conscious torment. Uh, I, I do believe that hell sort of exists in the sense that we create hell on earth. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of violence that happens in the world. And I think we create that hell. Uh, I would imagine we've created a lot of hell for a lot of Palestinians right now in the world. And uh, we've created a lot of hell, uh, especially Christians have created a lot of hell for a lot of other people around the world. Um, and so in that way, I believe hell is certainly real. Um, but uh, I think we're the ones that are creating a lot of that hell. Uh, so anyway, all, all that's to say, I think those questions are a little different for me or that answer those very differently. Um, but uh, that, that's how I'd respond to those. What is it that you, that you think is in people or what is it about people that they just, they have this desire to make everybody a Christian. And mm -hmm. if we don't make somebody a Christian, then we don't, we're not loving them. Yeah. I, I'm asking not only from a theological perspective, just from like a humanist perspective, like what is going on in human beings? Yeah. What is it about human beings that we have to make everybody like us? That's a great question. I think there is this like certainty or safety that humans experience when differences are negated. So for example, if everyone was a white Christian man, all of a sudden, for some reason, a white Christian man feels more safe or assured in themselves when that happens. Uh, and so I, I wonder, you know, I could be totally off base, but I wonder if that sort of supremacy of uh, of patriarchy, the supremacy of Christianity, the supremacy of whiteness. Uh, if a lot of that comes down to like, in terms of like a, like either a psychoanalytical or psychological, uh, if, if it was psychological, I wonder if a lot of that comes down to this like assertity uh, or assuredness in safety. Uh, and uh, certainly, I obviously, I think that's a totally misguided way of living in the world uh, to, to feel like you're always safe because you are on top. Um, but I wonder if a lot of that comes down to the fact that um, a lot of people are wanting to feel safe, uh, that they are assured in that safety. And um, I, again, I, I think it's a wrong way to live, but I, I wonder if that like supremacy of patriarchy, Christianity, of whiteness comes down to that assured, the assuredness and safety. I think that's a great perspective. I appreciate you sharing that. Definitely something for me to think about, look back at this episode. And I love that answer. Nobody's really answered it that way. Um, so I appreciate it. Um, 
We got about maybe 10, 20, 15 more minutes. Okay. Let's talk about the state of the church. Yeah. You know, the United Methodist Church is going through a split right now. 35, let's talk about just Florida specifically. 35% of churches have left because they're more conservative in, in terms of sexuality. That's what they say. Um, so about, you know, 65% are left. Worship attendance is down. Church participation is down. And so what comes to mind for me is, you know, we're having these conversations like this. You're on social media. You're reaching likely more people than you would if you were in a local church. Um, what is the state of the local church? What is the state of, of worship services Sunday morning? Is that relevant anymore? Who is mm -hmm. going to that? You know, I work in a college ministry at, uh, in Orlando here, one of the largest universities. Um, and even if people are going to worship services, it's likely that they're conservative evangelical. And so is that theology helpful? And so what is the state of the local church? What is the state of works of piety, works of mercy? And now that we're on social media more, give me your analysis. Yeah. Uh, first off, I, I'm not one of those people that thinks, ah, well, the church is going away and that is what it is. And, and that's fine. I, I still believe in the local church. I think the local church is, is very important. And it's certainly important for Christians uh, and for people, for Christians to be a part of local church communities. I think that is so, so important still. Uh, so I, I first want to say that, but obviously you're right. Like just the data shows that local church participation and attendance is just going down. And especially among young people, um, you know, people under 40, uh, certainly it's declining. And so there is a lot of concern around local churches around like, what, what is the church going to be looking like? I mean, it certainly is changing already, but what is it certainly going to be looking like, let's say in 25 years? Uh, and, and obviously there's lots of different sociologists thinking about different things regarding that. Uh, what I would say from like kind of a person that I, I think in some way, shape or form, I'm doing ministry. Obviously, I'm not doing ministry in a local church, but I'm doing ministry. And uh, I certainly want to empower those who are working in local ministries at churches and, and other local type of ministries. The thing that I, I think is really important for, for those folks, the, you know, the pastors of the world, uh, the local leaders and the, the local church leaders in the world, is for them to know that the community that the church creates is so vital. It's so vital. One of the things that I constantly hear, especially from people who leave evangelicalism like I have, uh, is, you know, they may have left their church community or their church community may have left them and they feel that void in their lives, that they really, truly long for that kind of community. And so I think it's vital for, especially for local churches to create these environments where people who may have that kind of religious trauma or have left evangelicalism that feel that void and not having that community anymore, to create environments where those folks might feel included, that their that their voice matters, uh, that uh, that they can be a part of a community once again. I, I think that is so important for local church leaders to um, to consider and to to kind of learn how to how to figure out well. So I I think that is really really vital. Again, local community is so so important. Obviously, we're seeing the decline 
A lot of people seem to uh, find community in other ways. And, and I think that's also fine as well. I, I think there's also ways that the church can partner in the ways that uh, people are showing up. Um, you know, I live here in Minneapolis. And uh, one of the things that was really amazing to see was how communities came together during the George Floyd pro protests, uh, you know, a few years ago. And what was really cool is, you know, a lot of churches may have felt like they're, you know, all these communities are popping up from the George Floyd protests. And those church communities might feel threatened where it's like, well, why are those people not showing up to our churches? Uh, what if instead of uh, in wanting those people to show up to your church, what would it be like for you to partner with those people and empower the wor powerful work that's uh, moving uh, within their community? And, you know, I, I don't think that this, the Holy Spirit is only able to work in the local church. I think when these George Floyd protest communities popped up, I think the Spirit was moving in those places as well. Might look way differently, than the local church. Uh, but uh, I certainly think the spirit is moving in those communities. So what would it look like for the church to partner with those uh, those kind of communities and empower the spirit, uh, the, the, empower those communities where the spirit is moving? I, I think that's vital as well. So I think those are kind of my two points where the local church needs to create, uh, create an environment for people who may have been hurt by the church to come back um, and experience community once again, really beautiful, wonderful community. Uh, I, I think uh, the church needs to focus on that. And the other thing that I think the church needs to focus on is recognizing that the spirit is moving even outside of the local church and empower and partner with those kind of uh, communities where the spirit is moving. I love that. I have this theory. I'd love to hear your quick thoughts on it is in the United Methodist Church, we teach prevenient grace, justifying grace and sanctifying grace. Prevenient mm -hmm. grace is the idea that God is using you before you even realize that God is using you. Justifying grace is a moment where your free will meets God's free grace. So you make a decision and you acknowledge, oh, Christ is, um, you know, working through me and the Holy Spirit is working through me. So you make that decision and then the process of sanctification is becoming holier, going to the Bible studies, you know, doing the, the thing, doing the Christian thing and exploring the many rooms. <clears throat> and so I feel like for a long time, the church has been focusing a lot on sanctifying grace. How do we get people mm -hmm. into our worship service? And if you get people into your worship service, they're already making a decision about Christianity. And so the people who come to church are going to be the people who feel safe in churches. And historically, people who feel safe in churches are either uh they're they're not minorities because most churches are white spaces white conservative spaces mm -hmm. so a person in the lgbtq community would likely not walk in there you know a, a person of color is you know going to feel uncomfortable in that space and so my ministry has been now okay we need to stop focusing on sanctifying grace and let's focus on prevenient grace how can we first make this space that we've created a safe space for everybody um and then if they want to, you know, you know, learn more about Christianity, they can. But my, my theory now is prevenient grace, focus on prevenient grace. And so we've been doing that in our ministry and it's been really going really, really well, reaching a lot of a lot of people. But the system says, no, we need people in Bible studies. No, mm. we need people in worship services. No, we need to see how many people you're indoctrinating into Christianity. And so my theory is no, no, no prevenient grace spaces. Let's do that because we help more people that way. You know, mm. so what do you think about all that? Yeah, well, first off, I, I think you're uh, totally on track. I will maybe push back a little bit and say, what if 
even in those, let's say, protest communities that popped up during the George Floyd protests, what if there's sanctifying grace that's happening in those communities? Now, that might look very different than what sanctifying grace looks like in a Christian community, certainly. You know, maybe that sanctifying grace in a church community certainly does look like reading the Bible, praying, all those types of things. But what if sanctifying grace is still happening in those protests, non-Christian communities, but it just looks differently, right? And so uh, that's that's what I would maybe uh, push back on a little bit is just saying that I do think sanctifying grace is even happening in those uh, non-Christian communities, um, but it probably just looks differently. You know, it's going to look like the way that those communities, uh, the, the vision of those communities, the values of those communities, uh, and the, the activities of those communities, it's just going to look quite differently, diff differently than Christian churches. But uh Nonetheless, I still think the spirit of God is still moving in those spaces and uh, is certainly um, bestowing the sanctifying grace onto those communities. No, I think that's a great critique. I think it more so adds a layer and then it makes me think of new questions I'm like, oh, I love that because then, you know, as my conservative roots or my conservative influence is telling me that justifying and sanctifying grace has to proclaim Christ. But you're saying, no, we can still see examples of sanctification in in people who aren't necessarily Christian. We can still mm. call that sanctifying. So yeah. I don't know if that's where you're getting at, but that's what it came to Yeah, mind. certainly. Uh, you know, this is where, you know, a lot of people might accuse me of having like a low Christology, uh, and this might be getting a little too theologically nerdy. But uh, I, I think the the spirit of Christ is able to manifest in lots of different ways. Uh, and and to me, that's a very high Christology is, you know, thinking that the spirit of Christ can show up in a variety of different communities and traditions. Uh, now, I certainly would not be the kind of person that thinks, you know, I would go into a Hindu temple and say, oh, I I see the spirit of God uh, or the spirit of Christ moving in this place. Uh, and you all are actually just uh, uh, Christians and you just don't know it yet. I, I, I'm not going to be that kind of person. But from my Christian perspective, I see the spirit of Christ moving in lots of different things uh, in lots of different communities. And so, yeah, why why would we not also think that the spirit of Christ wouldn't be moving in these protest communities or other kind of communities uh, where I certainly think the spirit of Christ is moving? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a very high Christology. Uh, you know, maybe I'm more orthodox than people realize that's funny that's funny um no i love that i love that I, i've really appreciated all your responses thank you so much you've helped me and i hope you can help a lot of people just kind of rethink the way that we that we think and we process a lot of things um i want to spend the last five minutes talking about the younger generation generation z i work in college ministries as i mentioned and you know i'm getting older i'm almost 40 and um, I'm, a, I'm a, a late millennial that was influenced by Gen X. Mm. Okay. So then the gap between me and Gen Z, you know, is pretty big. I'm, I'm further away from them than you are in terms of understanding some of the cultural shifts. And I'm open-minded. But the thing with, you know, boomers, Gen X, is that we, they don't realize what they're doing sometimes until somebody brings it up. And they're like, oh, then they open up their mind. And so Gen Z is teaching us so much about um, being ex-evangelical, about PC culture, about being more open-minded, about the future of the church. And so what is your experience with Gen Z? As pastors, most of the pastors in our conference are older and they're trying to reach Gen Z. What do you think? Give us some advice. Give us some perspectives. Help me become a better campus minister. <laughs> 
help us. Yeah, I, I obviously there's a lot of concern, especially among young, younger generations like Gen Z, about you know they're they're not coming to our church anymore and they're not active in the church anymore. And and there's certainly a lot of concern there. And certainly a, a lot of the data is showing that a lot of Gen Z people are much more progressive than even previous generations at that age. And so uh, there is a, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of things changing, especially among these younger generations. Uh, one thing I'll mention is, you know, there's a lot of people really complain about Gen Z being on their phones all the time. And here's the thing, I, you know, I remember as a millennial growing up hearing the same exact thing, you know, that you know, the millennials are always on their fo- their damn phones and millennials are always on the, on their, their devices. I heard that growing up too. So, and I would say most millennials that I know of, like more or less, like know how to navigate, uh, in-person interactions. So I think there's a lot of concern around that. And, uh, I would imagine Gen Z, Gen Z is going to figure that out too. Uh, just it's, it's natural for humans to eventually figure out how to interact with each other in person and not just on phones. So, uh, I, I think that's a little bit of a, a misguided uh, concern that sometimes I hear from folks. Um, the other thing that I think is powerful, though, around that kind of online piece that obviously is very clearly important to Gen Z, and this sort of relates to the last conversation we were just having, but obviously there's a lot of online communities that Gen Zers are experiencing and a part of. And again, being a person that thinks that the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ is moving in lots of different kinds of communities, I also think that the spirit of God very likely is moving in those communities as well, even these online communities. And again, I think it's really important then for local churches and the church in general to try to figure out like, what does it mean for us to empower uh, or partner with those kind of online communities where Gen Z is clearly very active? Um, Again, it might not necessarily mean that you're going to be able to get those Gen Zers to actually sit in your pews, uh, but it does mean that you are participating where the spirit is moving. And and I think that's uh, the church's call. And so I, I also think that is really important for people to identify where are these communities that Gen Zers are a part of, what, what and what is the spirit of God doing in those communities, and how can the church partner and empower those communities um, for the spirit of God to continue to move in those churches or in those communities. Uh, so I think that's a, another important piece to, to really consider. Um, so yeah, th- that's kind of what I, I would think of in regards to, to Gen Z. Uh, don't be the grumpy old boomer man that is just like, you know, damn those old generations uh, or the, these newer generations, these young generations. Um, be curious what you know how is god moving in these generations uh and uh, i certainly think god uh, even though these generations uh, these younger generations would not likely identify as christian seems like to me the spirit of god is certainly moving in, in, throughout them you know again the all the data shows like how much more progressive they are than previous generations at the same age and so i certainly think the spirit of god is moving uh and i think it's the church's call to identify how they can partner and empower the spirit of god moving within those generations well I hope that was helpful for those who are trying to engage gen z just be open-minded stay curious you know love your neighbor especially mm-hmm. young people. And don't be, like you say, don't be that grumpy old boomer, you know, <laughs> be open-minded. <laughs> well, we're, we're coming to a close here. Um, I thank you so much for your time, Mason. And I hope that more people share your story and more people kind of live out what it means to be a more open-minded Christian. And I hope that those who are listening here in the beloved community um, 
took a lot from today's conversation. I was wondering if you could just leave us out with some, like a little encouragement, like a little benediction, like a little, yeah. little message of hope. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine United Methodists might appreciate this, but uh, I am very much, even though I had a Calvinist uh, stage in my life, a Calvinist phase in my life, I am not a person that believes that the world has been predetermined. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the world think that God has already uh, made everything that will happen, has already figured that all out, and we're essentially just a uh, just uh, puppets that are just playing out the script. Uh, I, I don't believe that is true at all. I think the future is open to all sorts of different possibilities. And uh, I, I think one of the things that we should have hope in then is that uh, because uh, the future is open to all sorts of possibilities, all the things that are going on right now in the world that are uh, not the way that we want them to, with war, with poverty, with uh, hunger, uh, with all sorts of kinds of violence, the world doesn't have to be like that. And then so if the world is full of different kinds of possibilities and the future is open to change, then that means that we can be a part of that change. Uh, and uh, that to me gives me great hope that the world does not have to be the way it is. Uh, there is another way that is possible. And so that's the word that I always love to leave people is that hope. The world does not have to be the way it is and another world is possible. So uh, that's, uh, that's the word that I'd love to uh, leave folks with.